Thank you. Thank you. Please be seated. The advent of the millennium was ushered in by parties at the Great Wall of China, the Taj Mahal, the Acropolis, and other sites in each of the world's 24 time zones. As a matter of fact, the 6,000-member Millennium Society had a party at the Great Pyramids in Egypt as they moved in to this, the 21st century. The question that we need to ask ourselves as Bible-believing Christians, did I have anything prepared that I could celebrate going into the 21st century? Before we did our film on economics and submitted it to the Video and Film Festival, I was asked seven years ago to do seven strategic shifts moving in to the 21st century. And I want to repeat them here in commencing this meeting this afternoon. One, we will enter into more stringent neo-nationalism throughout the world over the next 25 years with nations looking more inward than outward. Secondly, a trade war has already commenced and some surprising coalitions may form to create trade barriers and self-protection. Thirdly, the Western world with its aging population is going to experience falling living standards. Fourthly, there will be a global shortage of money causing gold and food to become the major currency requirement. Five, fast wars of around six months will be more of the norm with terrorism as a renewed power and even selected nuclear targets towards Israel and the United States will be enacted. This is what we uh, said seven years ago. Six computers will become less reliant because the method of pirating and the means of disrupting and curtailing communications become available and information privacy will become a privilege of the past. Seventh, the United Nations will be reduced to a commando-type organization and lose some of its bureaucratic blockages and become more dictatorial. You see, the reason that I study history is that history repeats itself. And the thing that we have learned through history is that we haven't learned through history. And so the question I have to ask you this afternoon is quite simple. Have your dreams lost their potency? Have your dreams been swallowed by bad decision debt and money problems? Have your dreams disappeared be because of neglect? Or are you bound by the rusty shackles of the past? Rolamay, the great philosopher, spoke about the cowardice of conformity. My Bible says, whatever you do, whatever you do, whatever you do, don't conform. And what do we do? We conform. I carry this around with me around the world. For those that are right at the back, let me explain. It's a cookie cutter. Because for a number of years, I was chairman of the board of the Haggai Institute of Advanced Leadership Training in Singapore. 
we would fly in up to 65 world leaders at a time and we would retrain them in leadership techniques how to break the preoccupational barrier cross culture communication economics politics and when we were being these great leaders together you would expect them to be gregarious and hospitable and get on well with one another no they fought like cat and dog why because a leader is never subjected to anything they're objective and if I've learned anything over the 44 years as a Christian traveling around the world working with some of the biggest corporate intellectual spiritual and political giants of the 20th century if I've learned anything at all I've learned that you can't make leaders with cookie cutters you can't make leaders with cookie cutters you see cookie cutters are rigid with no flexibility cookie cutters are always controlled by a power force and the imprint is always made under pressure cookie cutters cannot grow outside of their original size are you allowing the world to cookie cut you do you have people that tell you that you're getting too big for your boots get bigger boots get bigger boots some time ago I was in Western Australia <coughs> speaking to a group I was invited there by a television channel and had to face a large audience with an atheist who was going to supposedly tear me to shreds because I was a wealthy Christian I remember the occasion very well because I had quite a large crowd in the television studio and while the makeup was getting put on and coming to a conclusion the stage manager came up to me in the makeup room and said Mr. Daniels are you ready I said well I think they've done the best job that they can do he said let me walk you down to the studio because you'll have to walk through some curtains and the lights will hit you and you have a step and you could easily fall and I just want your arm so that when you step through you'll be fine he said I can hear them already introducing you and we have a large crowd and they're very enthusiastic and I was to debate the free enterprise system the Christian church and the gospel of Jesus Christ against this supposed genius that was coming in to tear me to shreds as I was about to step through the curtain he said by the way we have made one little change I said well what is that they said well we don't have one person debating with you now we have four well immediately I knew they were in trouble and the first question they asked me Mr. Daniels is it true that you only own one pair of dress shoes I said yes that's right they said with all the millions you've made why do you only have one pair of shoes I said well that's obvious I've only got one pair of feet They said, would you drive a gold Rolls Royce? I said, yes, but I've only got one of them. They said, could you give us a definition for success? I said, yes, the willingness to bear pain. I didn't say be a pain. But you see, we stay in the comfort zone. You do not win in the comfort zone. You've got to step into the pain arena. And we love that poverty mentality because it means we don't have to perform and if we don't perform we don't earn if we don't earn we don't get if we don't get we cannot give and the devil's won again back several years ago I financed some of the greatest theologians in the world with one question 
What was the value of the gold, frankincense and myrrh that was given to Jesus at his birth in today's currency? Nobody had asked that question for 2,000 years. I financed them to check down through Persia. They came up with some amazing discoveries. They found that when the Magis came down, they had an army to protect the treasure. Part of the army was 1,000 crack bowmen. When they came to the city of Herod, you'll read in your Bible that, the, that they were troubled because we found out at exactly at that time that Herod's army was away fighting a war and the people coming down with the Magi's could have taken the city like that. They came to where Jesus was when he was 22 months old with the Shekinah glory shining down over the house and we have documented evidence on all this, this is not supposition and they unrolled from the camels all the treasure, some of it from Solomon's temple. Have you any idea what the value of that treasury was that was laid at the feet of Jesus when he was 22 months old? Try 400 million American dollars. Now don't talk to me about Jesus being poor anymore. Oh, some historians say, oh, wait a minute, his parents had to have a poor person's offering. Why is that so? Because if that had touched the son's inheritance, that had been stoned to death under Hebrew law. But he was beyond wealth. He could turn the water into wine. He could multiply the loaves and fishes. He could stop the wind. Why do we take the king of heaven and put him in a little box? He was beyond wealth. Well, I'll never forget when I got back to my hotel room. It, was, it wasn't even a difficult debate. I mean, I've done hundreds of debates. But this was one of the easier ones. I, I don't think that my four contestants had ever read Shakespeare in Othello, where it says, Oh God, that man should use his mouth as an enemy to his brain. <clears throat> when I got back to my hotel room, the telephone rang, and this was a, one of the rare occasions that my wife was not with me. I picked up the telephone and there were a bunch of teenagers on the line. I'll never forget this. I ought to write something about it because here were these teenagers pleading with me to teach them goal setting the following morning. I said, now well, wait a minute, how did you find me? They said, we phoned every hotel until we found you. I said, well who are you? Are you a church group, a service group? Who are you? They said, no, we're just, a, we're just about 200 teenage boys. I said, well, what keeps you together? And this is going to shock some of you. They said, what keeps us together is that we're frightened that our family, our mum and dad, might not be able to handle the family budget and we might have to pick it up for them. Think about that. Australia and the United States, and I don't know about here in Great Britain, but we have the highest teenage boy suicide rate in the world. It's not in Calcutta or Kosovo, it's in America and Australia and it's probably here too. And why is that so? Because you see, you tell your kids, you can do anything Mary, you can do anything Jimmy, we affirm you and, uh, and you affirm your kids and you tell them that they can do anything but they look at you. They say, if that's right mum and dad, why didn't you do better? And they go out and kill themselves because they think it's hopeless. Well they got my attention. I said, where will you hold this tomorrow morning? They said, McDonald's. I said, what time? They said, 7 a.m. 
Now, I'm going to destroy everything you've thought about a guy like me. I don't get up early. I think if God wanted me to see the sunrise, he'd schedule it a little later in the day. I'll watch it on video. I think mornings are overrated. You know, some of you people, you have your quiet time at 4 and 5 and 6 o'clock in the morning. I talk to God at 10 o'clock. He's not busy then. <laughs> so there I was at 7 o'clock in the morning with a cheeseburger and a bottle of Coca-Cola, not my normal, my normal breakfast. But I had one of the most exciting times I've ever had in my life with these boys asking these questions. I had six whiteboards and I was uh, giving all these illustrations. I marched up and down like a Gestapo. And then finally this teenage boy thanked me. He was, uh, face was covered in pimples. He had a t-shirt and a pair of jeans on and Reeboks. And then after he thanked I've never met anyone like this young man. He had more confidence than a monkey's got fleas. <clears throat> and then he turned on the rest of the kids. This happened. This is not something I read in the Reader's Digest. He said, now listen, kids, when you get home, use some strange words to your parents, like please and thank you. He said, whatever happens, try to understand their music. When you hear that awful grating sound coming out of the compact disc player, as Glenn Miller plays Moonlight Serenade, try to accustom yourself to the strange sound. He said, and be patient with the underachievers. When you catch your dieting mother sneaking salted nuts, don't show your disapproval, just tell her you love fat mothers. He said, and be tolerant about their appearance. If when your father comes back from getting a haircut and he looks like a skin rabbit, he said, don't be personally humiliated. Remember, it's important for him to look like his peers. Am I ring any bells out there? He said, most of all, if they do something you consider wrong, let them know it's their behavior you dislike, not them. You see, ladies and gentlemen, we've, we've lost the plot. We're still behaving if it's the early 20th century. You see, when Jesus walked on this earth, there was only one city in the world with a population of one million, that was Rome, the world's political center. But coming into the 20th century, there were 93 cities in the world with a population of a million. By 1980, there were 225 cities in the world with a population of a million. And now in the 21st century, have 437 cities in the world with a population of one million. And Mexico City, Calcutta, London, San Paulo, Los Angeles have larger populations than 55 countries of the world. So what is the key to handling this, the 21st century? I think Mortimer Adler, the great US philosopher, understood it when he spoke about leadership. He said he or she must have three things, ethos, pathos, and logos. He said the ethos of the moral character, the source of his or her ability to persuade. He said, hello, the pathos is the ability to touch feelings and to move people emotionally. The logos is the ability to give solid reason for an action and to move people intellectually. You see, a leader does not get distracted by issues away from the main event that uses time and energy out of proportion to the dominant cause. A leader is prepared to accept immediate deprivation in exchange for future gratification. A leader has a deep sense of reality to the urgent. 
a leader is prepared to accept failures with insight and optimism. Leaders obtain that they might uh, use that attainment and share it with others. Leaders very often move from crisis to crisis, losing some, winning others, but gaining ground at every opportunity. And we've come here to talk to you about business leadership. And I guess where I left off just before lunch on the law of attraction, I need to take it to principle 10, which is persistence. You see, we should never give up, let up, or shut up until God takes us up. I'm tired of people telling me, well, I tried to go into business, but I was just too honest, I failed. You see, that presupposes that everyone that's in business is dishonest, and that's not true. Oh, well, I had a dream once, but no one would help me. God gives a dream to you. And what happens in our churches is we say, well, uh, God has given me this burden. I want to share it with you. And immediately you share it with someone else. You've halved your leadership qualities. God gives you a dream for you to fulfill, and he gives you the ability to do it. I believe there's two gifts that God gives you. One, you wake up and you realize you're good at mathematics, or you're good at music, or you're good at sport. But sometimes you have a dream so big that the gifting that you've got just can't do it, so you have to earn the rest of the gifting. I wish I could explain to you, I wish I had the words to say and to be able to explain to you what it's like to be 26 years of age and be illiterate. What it's like to be in a church when everyone looks sideways at you because uh, uh, you can't understand what they're saying up there in the pulpit. What it's like to try and get something to stay in your brain and uh, my, my brain was like a water tank with a slow leak and everything kept spilling out all the time. What it's like to read a book and then pick it up again and wonder what was in it. You see, but the brain is like a muscle and it can be developed. I remember when I lost everything for the third time. I had this factory ready to be dispossessed from me. I got real serious with God. I stripped my underpants. I lay on that cold, damp floor and started to weep. I said, Lord, uh, I thought you wanted me to go into business to earn money to give around the world but I'm so low at the moment, I could walk under a snake's belly with an umbrella up and not even scratch his navel. What's happened? I stayed on that floor until the Lord touched me, and after that, nothing went wrong after that economically. But it's persistence. Persistence. I have a friend that's worth 600 million. George is just an ordinary guy. You wouldn't even have a second look at George. But you know, he used to get around in combination overalls, go to church, never had any money, always broke. But he loved aeroplanes. And George would uh, volunteer to be a co-pilot. And he was co-piloting an aeroplane one day, and it lost altitude, and smoke started to pour out of the fuselage. And it started to come down, and they crashed on a mountain, hooked up in a huge tree. Both the pilot and he were, were badly hurt, but they were still conscious and they could smell the gasoline and they knew that any moment that thing was going to blow up. So they opened the, the doors and fell out of the tree. And uh, poor George, he, he broke both his legs and he's laying on his back and suddenly the plane explodes and burns all his clothes off. I said, George, is that what changed your life? Was it on the mountain? He said, Peter, when that explosion took place, he said, I looked up to heaven. I said, Lord, what do you want me to do? He said, I didn't have to know the Greek of this or the Hebrew of that. It worked well in English. 
and I had several months in the burn unit and I had them in insurance payment and I had time to think and I said to the Lord if you pull me out of this I'll, I'll be a different man George started to think and he thought deeply finally he worked out a concept of real estate and he found some land that he wanted to buy but he only had enough for a holding deposit he did some feasibility studies he went to the bank to try and borrow three million dollars they knocked him back he went to the next bank and they said no I mean George had never done anything he went to the next bank and they said no he went to the next bank and they said no he went to the next George went to 97 banks and they all said no he got it at the 98th it's called persistent my Bible says having put your hand to the plow and looking back you're not fit for the kingdom of heaven Benjamin Disraeli said perseverance and tact are the two great qualities most valuable for all mankind who want to amount to something but especially for those who want to step out of a crowd persistent persistence persistence principle number 11 is worry learn to handle worry learn to handle pressure for about 18 years I worked with the late Dr. Norman Vincent Peale one of the most wonderful men I've ever known he wrote the book the power of positive thinking he tells me a wonderful story he was walking down the streets in New York one day and he bumped into someone and they looked up and they said oh my goodness you're Dr. Norman Vincent Peale he said that's right you wrote the book the power of positive thinking he said correct sold 27 million copies he said that's right oh he said this is my lucky day he said well can I help you I'm a minister of the gospel he said it's all these worries Dr. Peel all this pressure and all these troubles he said if you can help me with them you'll be my friend for life he said well do you want to get rid of some of them or all of them or all of them he said well you are very fortunate because as a minister of the gospel I've just left 150,000 people who have absolutely no problems at all oh he said take me to them he said the Westgate Cemetery he said problems are a sign of life and the more problems you've got the more life you've got he said and if I haven't got any problems when you get home kneel alongside your bed and put your hand up to heaven and say Lord don't you trust me anymore give me some problems and young people let me tell you you ask the older people here and they'll tell you that the problems they had to overcome the difficulties that they had to wrestle with gave them the seasoning and the information and the ability to be able to do what they're doing today but what is worry what is worry worry is creating mental pictures of the things you do not want that's anti Bible the Bible says whatever things are good report whatever things are true think on these things principle number 12 decision-making I suppose the area where Bible believing Christians fall more than anything else is in decision-making we vacillate we uh, say we're waiting on God I mean that's a good one isn't it we're waiting on God I've got news for you God's in front he's waiting for us well sometimes I head up some very large Christian organizations and uh, we'll do our demographics around the world we'll put out prayer uh, letters and we'll have people praying all around the world for some great event but sooner or later we have to make a decision to go ahead 
and the board of directors may fly into Singapore or Chicago or anywhere else in the world and we meet and as chairman of the board finally I have to call for a vote and here I am trying to get this great thing off the ground and I call for a vote and as soon as I call for a decision to be made some twit on the board some idiot some knothead says well oh, Mr. Chairman I have a feeling of my spirit about this I tell him to go to the bathroom and stop interrupting the meeting I mean what's happening we allow the dissenters to be the deciders I mean if a truck's coming down the center of the road you don't kneel on the ground and pray about it you get the heck out of there I've seen more lives lost I've seen more families fall apart I've seen more churches split I've seen more companies collapse not because of bad decisions but because they will not make a decision when I saw what was happening in Rwanda a few years ago I said to my wife I said I'm going to try and get some gunships and some mercenaries we'll go in there and we'll shoot that place a little bit and we'll clean that up otherwise we're going to lose a million people and what happened United Nations vacillated they fiddled around no one made any decisions and we lost one million people no one would make a decision according to a diplomat in United Nations has said that nothing short of a frontal lobotomy will bring the United Nations into line yes decision-making we have proven scientifically that successful people make decisions quickly and change them rarely and unsuccessful people make decisions slowly and change them often principle number 13 if you're going to go into business you need to have financial reserves some years ago I read the story of the wise virgins who trim their lamps and it affected me more in one particular way than it ever had before I try to humanize these things here are these girls having a wonderful time and they say we're going to this party and they're wondering what to wear and all sorts of things and they knew they had to get some lamps because electricity didn't work in those days and uh, they had to get their oil and it came time to go to the party and some of the girls says oh oh I didn't get my oil I didn't get my oil uh, you're a Christian you share your oil with me and they say no way Jose otherwise I won't have enough for myself and they went in and they shut the door now let me tell you we have kept financial reserves in gold and silver and and cash let me tell you that's not hard and cold it's warm and soft in cash for all these years and that's why we've been able to go up and down in the uh, in the ebb and flow of business all graphs in business don't always go up they go down too and because we have these reserves and because we never borrow because we don't uh, mess around with banks we're able to uh, go through all the ups and downs of business so make sure in your business you keep some financial reserves and they are for catastrophes they're not there to buy a new car 14 one of the areas where I feel that Christians can make an awful lot of money and seeing that I'm speaking primarily to a black audience let me be very frank with you you have a gift that you do not use you abandon it you, you're not even aware of the gift you have you see salespeople around the world 
fail continually for one reason they cannot handle rejection black people can handle rejection black people can handle rejection they've been rejected for generations hundreds of years don't mess with you you ought to be the greatest salespeople in this nation you ought to tie it up strap it up wrap it up you can sell because you can handle rejection and you don't have to be smart to sell all you need to do is ask the questions keep asking the questions ask the questions keep asking the questions when you're asking the questions you're in control when they're asking the questions they are in control so when the tables turn and they start asking you the questions look at them with a smile like a th thousand neon lights say that's very interesting and why did you ask that question you get back in control again But you see, try, you, you don't need money to start a business. Go into the selling profession and do it on commission only. No retainer, because commission is set for mediocrity. A commission is set for an average person to make an income to live on. And you can do much better than that. Principle number 15, the greatest power gift that God has ever given you. The greatest power gift is called the power of choice. You can leave here today and you can say, well, I didn't like that guy from Australia. I didn't like his accent. He was a little bit cocky. I've been, I've been accused of that. But you can also say, well, maybe God sent this man. I couldn't imagine that I would want to travel for 30 hours by plane. I couldn't imagine that uh, you would want to travel and leave your grandchildren and family at home leave a beautiful estate where, uh, uh, I mean, it's close to the Garden of Eden. I couldn't imagine you wanting to uh, uh, leave all those fine horses I have. We own our own polo club, indoor swimming pools, all that sort of thing, to get on a plane and eat that food and come and talk to people that you've never met. Uh, this is your choice. You can do something with it or you can ignore this gift that God has given you. And let me say this, and I, I don't want to embarrass the bishop, but they can't pay my airfares, they can't pay my hotel bills, they can't pay my uh, expenses, they can't give me an honorarium. I'm here free of charge. I don't take any of it. Okay, let's talk about law and conflict. In 44 years of business, I've never been sued.